Samantha, and I'm a senior in the Hutchins program. And I'm Jess, also a senior in the Hutchins program. Today, I will be discussing how climate change is affecting people's overall health, how our food is being affected, which in turn influences our bodies. And we're also going to touch on the issue of urbanization and how your socioeconomic status could be detrimental to you dealing with the climate change sickness in your neighborhood. Later in the show, I will be discussing how climate change has increased the incidence of infectious, zoonotic, and vector-borne diseases. I will then explain how water contamination from climate change is impacting our health. Lastly, I'm going to be interviewing a cancer specialist on how climate change and its effects may be a leading factor in the increase in cancer diagnoses. We hope you enjoy the show. Hello, all skeptics, believers, and people of the world. My name is Jess, and I'm going to be discussing with you all today how climate change is affecting your general health, as well as how crops are being affected. And we're gonna to touch a little bit here on how an increase in urbanization can cause a quicker spread of diseases. All right, so I'd like to start off with a little about climate change, just in case you're unfamiliar with the topic. So climate change is happening all around the world. And you know, it's not only affecting our earth, but it's, it's really taking a toll on people's health. Um, the world, excuse me, uh, the increase in extreme weather is no coincidence. And this is directly correlated to a rise in our population being more prone to disease. Climate change is occurring as greenhouse gas emissions, AKA carbon dioxide, uh, water vapor, methane, uh, they're producing a greenhouse effect. And this means that they're acting as a blanket and they're trapping heat around our atmosphere. So this is causing the planet's temperature to rise at unprecedented rates. In particular, one of the most focused on gases that we see is carbon dioxide or CO2. So according to the World Health Organization, during the last 100 years, human activities, particularly related to burning fossil fuels, uh, deforestation, and agriculture, these have led to a 30% increase in carbon dioxide levels in the atmosphere, causing the trapping of more heat. So the soaring amounts of CO2 are having a profound impact on the way that the world's crops and livestock, yes, your human food supply is being brought up, and its ability to provide enough and nutrient-rich enough food for the survival of the human race. And what we're seeing here, we have undernutrition and overnutrition, which are directly related to obesity and many other health, significant health ramifications. So I'd like to turn to an excerpt that I have here from The Lancet, which tells us that worldwide agricultural activity, especially livestock production, accounts for about a fifth of the total greenhouse gas emissions, thus far contributing to climate change. And its adverse health consequences, including the threat to food yields in many regions. Particular policy attention should be paid to the health risk posed by the rapid worldwide growth in meat consumption. 
both by exacerbating climate change and by directly contributing to certain diseases. So to prevent increased greenhouse gas emissions from this production sector, both the average worldwide consumption level of animal products and the intensity of emissions from livestock production must be reduced. And you know, I'm not saying that we all need to go vegan, but it's something that you really should be considering um, as you're planning out your daily meals, as you're planning out your weekly meals. Like what is truly important? What does your body really need? Um, and what does our planet need? So when we're talking about the warming of our planet, you know, it's gonna be gradual as we have seen so far, but the frequency and the severity of extreme weather events, such as intense storms, heat waves, droughts, hurricanes, and floods, these could all be extremely abrupt. And the consequences for your health are going to be dramatic. So it's no secret that um, the United States, you know, has been undergoing a continuous series of droughts across our entire nation, the United States, and the Southwest in particular. They've had an increased risk of feeling the combination of the rise in temperature. So we're going to be talking about a rise in heat amongst our atmosphere, which leads to evaporation from the soil, um, you know, making times of already lowered precipitation even drier than usual. The Center for Climate Change and Energy Solutions enlightens us that a changing climate can also alter atmospheric rivers. Now, when I say atmospheric rivers, um, what I mean is narrow streams of moisture, uh, which are transported through the atmosphere. So these can especially disrupt precipitation patterns in the Western United States. So a combination of shifting atmospheric rivers and warmer temperatures could also affect the Western snowpack and melt potentially decimating the water supply. So it's no secret here that uh, droughts destroy grain crops. And this in turn is going to globally raise food prices. And as we have less access to the things that we need, you know, prices will be raised. So if your food security is at risk, do you think it might be time to start listening to us? And I'd like to turn to an interview that I have here. Um, and this is gonna be between Gregory Wilpert, um, a newscaster and a research associate at the University of Washington, uh, Michelle Tigchulier. And we're gonna find out about what this global crop shock might look like. So as we're turning to this interview, we're gonna hear uh, Wilpert introducing first an article that Tigchulier wrote, and then we'll hear from uh, Michelle herself. All right, so let's listen in to what they have to say on the topic. In a third study by Michelle Tigchulier uh, shows how a warming world will disrupt global food production. Her article, Climate Change Could Heighten the Risk of Global Food Production Shocks, examines how climate change will contribute to lower, more volatile, or failed crop yields. We're now joined from Seattle by Michelle Tigchulier. 
she is the author of the aforementioned study and a research associate at the University of Washington, where she studies the effects of climate change on global food security. Thanks for joining us today, Michelle. Thank you. Happy to be here. So your study examines how climate change will affect different parts of the world uh, in terms of food production. Currently, the Paris Climate Agreement aims at keeping the global temperature rise to less than two degrees Celsius above pre-industrial levels. Give us a brief summary of what you uh, find uh, such a temperature increase of, let's say, two degrees Celsius would mean for global pro uh, food production. Yeah, um, so in our study, we did look at um, what a two degree warmer world would mean for food production. And we also looked at what a four degree warmer world would look like for food production. And we see um, that in both of those worlds, uh, crop yields would be uh, significantly lower uh, as, and also that it really matters if we do two or four degrees warming, um, just underscoring how important the Paris Agreement is. And in our study, we specifically looked at corn, which is currently the most grown crop in the world. And we found that with a two degree warming, um, global corn yields declined between 10 and 20%, and also yields become more volatile. So this means that the risk of uh, having crop failures um, becomes larger in a two degree warmer world. So, um, and of course you're looking at the global situation, but you also look at different regions. Uh, and do you see a cor correlation between the richer and the poorer areas of the world and how uh, the adverse effects of climate change uh, affect their food production? That is in Northern countries, which are, tend to be wealthier, uh, could they actually benefit from hotter summers and winters? Whereas the Southern uh, regions uh, would have uh, suffer more from climate change in terms of food security? Yeah, so actually in the case of corn, what is really interesting is that just four countries, the United States, China, Brazil, and Argentina, actually produce more than two-thirds of the world's corn. So the production is highly concentrated in just a few locations. And we were expecting that, especially for the United States, since it's currently not as warm, maybe the effects wouldn't be as bad. But we find that um, for the US in particular, um, for the US and China and, and those other countries, um, we actually get relatively similar um, effects of warming on crop yields, which is really bad news um, for those countries themselves, but also for um, the poorer countries in which um, many people, uh, especially urban consumers, are really dependent on the prices of food in international food markets. Um, so even if they don't live in the United States, they are affected by crop losses in, in the United States. Wow, what an informative interview. So, um, you know, at the height of the 2012 drought, the US Department of Agriculture had declared a natural disaster over 2,245 counties. As well, 71% uh, of the United States. So uh, globally, drought struck several major breadbasket regions simultaneously in 2012, adding to food price instability in countries already facing food insecurity. And these cost spikes can lead to social unrest, migration, and famine. Oh, okay, so, oh, thank you. Um, so it looks like I'm getting an image now from my assistant and 
what I'm seeing here is a map. And or this, is, this is used as a drought monitor uh, for the US. So what I'm seeing is exceptional levels of drought. Wow, exceptional levels, levels of drought um, affecting, as we discussed earlier, the Southwest regions. So in particular, Nevada, Arizona, Utah, parts of New Mexico, and even into Colorado. Um, we're also seeing severe and extreme drought really on the entire left side of the country. Um, if so, if, if we were to split this map of the United States down the middle vertically, um, I'm speaking on the left side here. So now there are states going through abnormally dry periods as well. These look like Louisiana, Mississippi, definitely Tennessee, and the northern halves of Illinois and Indiana as well. And it looks like, um, oh, unfortunately, even moving up the map to the northeast sector, we're getting abnormally dry patterns in New York and even some severity of drought in Vermont. You know, it's, it's really so unfortunate that with the United States in its current political divide and a global pandemic called coronavirus that we're enduring, it seems almost as if climate change isn't really on the forefront of people's minds at the moment. Um, and I mean, coronavirus has been circling for a, a year now. Um, it's March now and started in last March. But it just, it hurts me that it seems like people are not making enough time for climate change and to deal with the issues that are really affecting all of us around the world. So extreme weather, you know, and other manifestations of climate change, they can cause morbidity and premature death through heat stress, air pollution, and infectious and zoonotic diseases. And uh, later in our podcast, my colleague, Samantha, she's gonna be discussing these unique chronic diseases in depth. And these are diseases that progressed from animals to humans, speaking on the zoonotic diseases. All right, so these manifestations, they also reduce access to food and water because nutritional and waterborne diseases are worsen and worsening pre-existing conditions. Um, you know, so, excuse me. <laughs> um, all right, so I'm gonna move on here to my final topic for discussion where we're gonna look at how people are being removed from their homes and sent elsewhere due to the climate change in their home regions. So climate change will be a major migration driver, you know, and there already have been, uh, it, it already has been, um, as we've been seeing around the world. And it's going to add on stress that contributes that contributes to the displacement of migration of individuals, um, of families, and really entire communities. So a review by Celia McMichael tells us that infectious disease risk is affected by migration. Um, 
and the international and internal migration alters the distribution and incidence of infectious disease. As migrating people are exposed to infection in new locations, these people are gonna serve as carriers of infection during transit and um, as, as they're going to their new sites of residence. Or they could even reintroduce infectious agents during return migration. So um, places around the world such as Iota, excuse me, <laughs> Isle de Jean Charles, an island in Louisiana, as well as an island in the Pacific Ocean, Kribati, which is home to 100,000 citizens, um, Taro in the Solomon Islands, and Shishmaref, a city in Alaska with approximately 600 inhabitants. You know, these are all places that already have or are going to have to find new homes or at least try to do their best to do so. And returning to my college knowledge, I can recall a documentary I watched in Justine Law's class. Um, the class was Climate Change and Society. And, you know, we saw how a family, a teenage boy and girl who were brother and sister, they had lived their entire lives on Isle de Jean Charles, um, a small island that's part of Louisiana. And, you know, they really lived a peaceful kind of country lifestyle, and they had so much freedom as they lived on an island that had extremely vast land, um, you know, but not many people around. And their home, um, just their home, had so much land that they could ride quads and dirt bikes around on a daily basis, you know? Um, there were shots of the kids just running through open fields of green and <laughs> it sounds like a movie. Um, and it kind of was, but this was really their life. And it was wonderful, you know, to see kids who truly loved where they came from. Um, then they found out that due to climate change, you know, the island was sinking and they were gonna have to be relocated. You could really see in this documentary, the true disappointment in these kids' eyes and in their hearts as they had to trek back to the mainland of Louisiana and discover where their new housing development was going to be built. And personally, I have, most of my family is from Louisiana, um, so I can really understand and, you know, like I, ha I have a lot of respect for these kids and where they grow up. And it's, it's just so unfortunate that they're not, they're just not allowed to be there anymore. And it's no fault of their own, really. It's the fault of the world not taking climate change seriously. You know, um, I loved where I grew up, a city in Southern California. And I can't even comprehend how devastated I would have been if I had been forced to leave without any warning. You know, moving forward here, I'd like to turn to um, the UN Refugee Academy. Um, and 
some information that I've learned from them is that in 2018, extreme weather events, such as severe droughts in Afghanistan, uh, tropical cyclones in Samoa, and flooding in the Philippines, it resulted in acute humanitarian needs. And according to the Internal Displacement Monitoring Center, there were about 18.8 million new disaster-related internal displacement records in 2017 alone. Most disaster displacement is uh, related to natural hazards and the impacts of climate change is internal with those affected, you know, um, with those especially remaining in their natural borders. But however, displacement, displacement across the borders also occurs. And it may be interrelated with situations of conflict or violence or the quickening spread of disease in certain parts of the world. So in all cases, you know, people displaced by disasters have needs and extreme vulnerabilities that must be addressed. People already displaced for reasons other than disasters, you know, linked to natural hazards, um, talking about refugees, stateless people, and even the internally displaced. They often reside in climate change and what we call what we could call you know climate change hotspots and they may be exposed to secondary displacement moreover though similar impacts on their home areas can inhibit their ability to safely return so groups of people that are disadvantaged um, they're affected at a much greater speed and much more detrimentally than people who are more socioeconomically equipped to handle health problems and have access to solutions. You know, so I'm going to turn back to a reading that I mentioned earlier um, from the World Health Organization. And this says that health impacts will be disproportionately greater in vulnerable populations. The people at greatest risk include the very young children in particular, you know, children living in poor countries, they are among the most vulnerable to the resulting health risk. And they're going to be exposed longer to the health consequences. So as well as children, we have the elderly and the already medically frail, you know, people with pre-existing medical conditions. So low-income countries and areas where malnutrition is widespread education is poor, and infrastructures are weak. These are going to be the places that have the most difficulty adapting to climate change and its related health hazards. You know, these are the places that aren't going to be able to figure it out quite as easy or quite as fast. And areas with weak health infrastructure, um, these are going to be the ones that we see just they're overall least able to cope without assistance to prepare and respond. So we know that there are many, many impacts of climate change 
to us as humans living our daily lives, you know, um, us as humans in our health, and as well, ramifications that are really affecting our planet in disastrous ways. And so, you know, I know there's quite a few conspiracies out there related to coronavirus specifically, and I'm jumping a little bit here, but, um, you know, there's conspiracy theories circling COVID-19 particularly. I mean, there's conspiracy theories about everything really, but uh, we're going to narrow in on COVID-19. And specifically what I'm talking about here is government control in relation to people wearing masks, um, people being tested and what are they putting in you when you're taking a test? Um, is your positive really a positive, you know, and especially um, with the new vaccination? Um, there's a lot of people who are quite skeptical and not so willing to jump into something that they're not so sure about. Um, But, you know, people have been getting tested and uh, people have been getting vaccinations, you know. So what I want to know in relation to this is why are there so many people discussing what's going on here and not enough people discussing climate change? Climate change is a life-threatening issue. And is it that people aren't seeing how deep this disaster can go? You know, how, how deep the ramifications are against us as a society? Um, do they think that COVID-19 is more of a, it's in your face right now, so we need to deal with it first kind of thing? Um, you know, and it's really... It's so circulated by the media, I think, that uh, this is what people are only seeing right in front of them. So it's really what they're only dealing with right now. And, I mean, don't get me wrong. I am not saying it is not an issue and it's not relevant because it is a major problem and it is extremely relevant. But so is climate change. So... I'm asking you as an audience, you know, I want to hear back from you guys. I want you to send in to us what you think is happening. You know, why haven't we been able to see what us climbers with us, excuse me, what us climate change believers would like to see, you know, as real action taken against climate change. And, you know, I don't know, is it a major shift in how the people in charge, you know, what they're doing really to relieve us as a population from the effects of climate change? Or, I mean, personally, I think we all know that our, our government, um, our government deals with catastrophic issues and our government could even be perceived as a catastrophic issue itself. Um, but do you guys think we should be relying solely on our government to make these changes for us? Or do you think it's time for us as individuals to come together and take charge in this fight 
against climate change. And, you know, that's all I've got for you guys today. It's really been great talking to you. Um, I'm going to go ahead and turn it over to my colleague, Samantha, who is going to discuss a little bit more in depth um, about climate change and infectious diseases and how you could be being infected. All right. So I'd like to thank you guys all for listening in with me and I'm going to turn it over. Hi, everyone. As just stated earlier in the show, I'm going to be discussing how climate change impacts the incidence of disease in humans. So I first wanted to start off by talking about how climate change and its effects can lead to higher instances of zoonotic and vector-borne diseases. And for those um, listening that may not be sure, a zoonotic disease is a disease that's spread from animals to humans. And then a vector-borne disease is a disease that's passed from vectors to humans. And vectors include insects such as ticks, fleas, mosquitoes, flies, and then they can also um, include different kinds of pathogens, bacteria, parasite, those kind of things. So many vectors are ectothermic, and this means that their lifestyles are dependent on the climate they're in and the temperature that they live in. And for this reason, climate change is a direct cause of the increase in vector-borne diseases that we've been seeing over the years. Um, climate change, of course, causes extreme weather and temperature changes, and both of these allow vectors to breed more frequently, have longer mating seasons, and it can also allow vectors to spread to new areas um, that were once too cold for them to live in or where the climate um, couldn't support them. So for example, as more greenhouse gases are released into the atmosphere, um, heat is being trapped on earth. And this of course causes an increase in temperatures. And um, the increase in temperature obviously has many disastrous impacts for earth. Um, for example, as temperature increases, we see glaciers and polar ice caps begin to melt. And after they melt, um, the sea level rises. And due to sea levels rising, um, there is also an increase in flooding. So with the increase in flooding and heavy rainfalls due to climate change, um, mosquitoes are allowed more places to mate and lay eggs since they need water um, to do that part of their life cycle. And this, of course, increases their population. And um, mosquitoes are known for carrying many different kinds of infectious diseases. They can carry malaria, Zika, encephalitis, and West Nile virus, just to name a few diseases. And so along with the increase in the mosquito populations due to climate change, more people can be infected with these diseases. And um, we've already seen this increase um, as recorded malaria cases have been rising over the last decade, um, which is when climate change has uh, definitely increased and become more of an issue. So along with um, mosquitoes, another example of climate change impacting vector-borne diseases can be seen with ticks. With the increasing temperature, 
and the milder winters we see due to climate change, more ticks can survive through the colder months that would have died due to extremely low temperatures. Um, they also can now move into new areas that were once too cold for them to live in. Now the temperatures have increased. And this of course means that more people can be exposed to ticks and can potentially um, be infected by the, the, the diseases that they carry, which include Lyme's disease, tick-borne encephalitis, Rocky Mountain spotted fever, among many other diseases. Although it is not as direct as vector-borne diseases, I also want to talk about zoonotic diseases and how they are being impacted by global warming as well. So as Jess talked about earlier in our show, global warming and its effects have led to food scarcity among many populations. And in some areas, the food scarcity has gotten so bad that people will look to non-game animals for food. This, is, this means that they are eating animals that are usually not hunted by humans. Um, and some of these animals include monkeys, bats, snakes, and different kinds of rodents. And wildlife like these are more likely to carry diseases that can then be spread to humans. So illnesses like HIV AIDS, Ebola, SARS, leprosy, and rabies um, can all be passed to humans through the consumption of infected animals. Another way that these animal to human diseases are being spread is through deforestation and aggressive land development. Although these are not impacts of global warming, um, deforestation and increased urbanization are both contributing factors to climate change. And they also contribute to a severe lack of biodiversity. As forests and jungles are being destroyed in the name of economic development, animals are being pushed from their homes into areas that are occupied by people. This means that animals that usually would not be in contact with humans are now driven into areas populated by humans. Moreover, as habitats are destroyed and other animals go extinct, food may become scarce for animals. And if these animals cannot find enough food in their usual areas, they may begin to stray into areas populated by people. This all leads to an increase in contact between animals and humans, which in turn can lead to the transmissions of diseases that I spoke about earlier. But not only does this exacerbate the spread of known diseases, it may also lead to previously unknown diseases being transmitted from these animals to humans. And new diseases may be even harder to cure, which again is a huge threat to human health. Another impact of climate change that affects human health is water contamination. As temperatures rise due to an increase in CO2 in the atmosphere, our bodies of water also tend to become warmer. And warm waters allow many different types of waterborne illnesses to thrive. For example, the bacteria that causes cholera, which is a gastrointestinal disease, survive better in warmer water. Research by the Institute of Medicine Forum on Microbial Threats state that the incidence and distribution of cholera are controlled by water temperature, precipitation patterns, and water salinity, all of which are influenced by global climate and are conducted through a complex web of ecological relationships. So this pretty much means that areas where 
clean drinking water is hard to find, may see an increase in cholera outbreaks, um, which means that already vulnerable populations may be hit even harder by climate change and its effects. Additionally, water runoff and contamination due to extreme weather also impacts human health. After large storms, um, water supplies can be contaminated with toxic waste and also pathogens such as Giardia and Cryptosporidium, which come from um, soil and human waste. And just recently, we've actually seen this occurring um, with the extreme snowstorm in Texas and how that has impacted their drinking water. Millions of people in Texas were instructed to boil their water after the extremely cold weather caused their pipes to burst, which could have potentially led them to drinking contaminated water. Another threat to human health is toxic algae blooms. Algae thrives in warmer waters, just like the pathogens I talked about earlier. So the increase in temperature due to global warming allows algae to spread faster. Additionally, climate change has made fresh water saltier due to droughts. And saltier water can actually cause the toxins in algae to leak out and then in turn um, contaminate the water. In addition to this, algae need CO2 to survive. So the increases in CO2 levels have actually caused a sharp increase in toxic algae bloom growth in our waterways. And we've also seen this here in Sonoma County um, in our rivers and lakes. In the past years, the Russian River has been overgrown with um, cyanobacteria, which is also called blue-green algae. And this has made uh, the water toxic to both humans and wildlife. Since this area is used a lot by people for recreational use, uh, swimming and boating, and it's also a place where animals drink, there have been many instances of illnesses due to the exposure to the blue-green algae. Lastly, due to an increase in rainfall from climate change, fertilizer runoff has become a huge issue for our oceans. This nutrient runoff also causes algae to grow very rapidly. This has led to the phenomenon, which is known as red tide, where so much algae is growing in the ocean that the water looks red. Red tide can directly and indirectly cause harm to human health. Humans can be directly impacted if they're exposed to toxins in the water or if they consume um, seafood that has been exposed to the neurotoxins found in uh, the algae. Indirectly, humans can also be affected since the toxins in algae can kill ocean life and also because as the algae itself dies, it leaches oxygen from the water, which in turn can lead to food scarcity for some populations that depend on the sea life for food. In addition to waterborne illnesses increasing due to climate change, foodborne diseases are also increasing. As climate changes and as temperatures also increase, pests become more abundant. According to scientists at the International Maze and Wheat Improvement Center, temperature and rainfall are big drivers of shifts in how and where pests and disease spread. With an increase in pests also comes an increased need for pesticides and fungicides. 
It has been proven that constant exposure to pesticides can be detrimental for a person's health. There have been links shown between pesticide exposure and chronic illnesses. For example, exposure to pesticides is connected to diseases such as cancer, diabetes, asthma, and certain neurological diseases. There has also been a connection between exposure to pesticides and reproductive issues, as well as birth defects. Also, since there is an increase in zoonic diseases due to climate change, many farms are giving livestock more antibiotics and other forms of medicine. Overuse of antibiotics in farming and agriculture can lead to health issues for humans. Overuse of antibiotics in farming and agriculture can lead to health issues for humans, such as the transmission of antibiotic-resistant bacteria from livestock to humans. Finally, soil contamination can also have a negative impact on human health. Climate change has caused increases in both flooding and drought. It has been proven that having alternating seasons of intense rain and drought can cause soil to become contaminated by toxins and pathogens. If there is an increase in soil contamination, then there also will be an increase in contamination of crops, which can lead to more foodborne illnesses for humans. For my next segment, I'm going to be interviewing a cancer researcher about the possible link between cancer and climate change. Can you introduce yourself and your research for our viewers? Hello, my name is Ashley Winters and I'm a researcher in the Department of Microbial Pathogenesis and Immunology at the Texas A&M Health Sciences Center. Um, my research focuses on malignant melanoma. Specifically, I researched the impact of mitochondrial DNA instability as a key factor influencing the immune microenvironment during cancer progression. Um, as you probably know, mitochondria provide energy that's critical for cellular processes, but they actually also uh, are important hubs for innate immune signaling and key regulators of inflammation. So basically the goal of my research is to understand the relationship between mitochondrial DNA instability and melanoma progression. From your research, do you believe that climate change and its effects uh, are to blame for the increase in incidence of cancer over the years? Well, as you know, climate change is accelerating rapidly in the past half century and so has incidence of many cancers. Um, so there is strong circumstantial evidence that supports the idea that factors related to climate change, including ozone depletion, uh, global warming, and air pollution have likely contributed to these increasing incidents of some types of cancer. Uh, it's also likely that climate change and its effects will continue to impose negative influence on specifically skin cancer uh, for many decades to come. Uh, and these effects from climate change are primarily associated with cancers of the lung, upper respiratory tract, the skin, um, the gastrointestinal tract, and the liver. Uh, one thing that's really worth noting uh, is that it's very difficult um, to study the connection between cancer and climate change because it's very complex relationship um, with exposures and outcomes changing over time, uh, multiple factors needing to be addressed and uh, cancer itself is not like an infectious disease. It has a long latency and its incubation period can be as long as 10 to 20 years before a solid tumor actually forms and an individual gets a clinical diagnosis. So it's definitely a difficult uh, connection to study.
So you specifically said that you um, research skin cancer. I was wondering if you could talk more about how climate change and, and skin cancer kind of interact. Sure. Um, so the association between ultraviolet exposure from the sun and the development of malignant skin disease has long been recognized, um, but it's still not really well understood. So uh, as you know, the ozone layer is being depleted over time, which is allowing more uh, ultraviolet radiation to reach Earth. Um, and ultraviolet radiation is considered what we call a complete carcinogen. And this means it has the ability to act as a mutagen and also promote the initiation of tumor formation without any other agent present. Um, and there's even been predictions that for every 1% decrease in the ozone layer thickness, uh, the incidence of melanoma is projected to increase one to 2%. And those are some pretty striking numbers and correlations. Um, but the most obvious connection you can think about yourself is that ultraviolet radiation and skin of ultraviolet radiation skin cancer is that most skin cancer actually forms in the areas that are the most skin exposed or sun exposed on the body. Um, so that's one thing to keep in mind. And one thing that's interesting and relevant to my research about UV radiation contributing to um, cancer, that UV radiation is known to be immunosuppressive. And that means um, if cancer is forming in your body, you, your immune system will have a reduced ability to clear those cancer cells um, if you are subject to stronger UV radiation. And on the topic of climate change, um, increased temperatures actually make UV radiation uh, more carcinogenic. And there's predictions that uh, as temperature increases for every one degree Celsius, it increases uh, five, the ultraviolet radiation increases by 5%, um, which greatly increases the risk of skin cancer, uh, especially to people spending time outside. So in your opinion, could um, cancers other than skin cancer be uh impacted by climate change and global warming? Yeah, so I guess I'll bring it back a little to the beginning, but the, the principal mechanisms through which climate change is likely to affect cancer are, are through pathways such as air pollution, exposure to ultraviolet radiation and disruptions in food and water supplies, as well as environmental toxicants and even possibly infectious causes of cancer. Um, I don't know if, if you know, but there are um, infections that can actually lead to cancer. Have you ever heard of that? Um, I've heard of diseases like herpes being linked to um, getting cancer, but I don't know as much as you probably do. Yeah, there's quite a few, so hepatitis B and C, HPV, Epstein-Barr, um, and HIV are all um, actually known to play causative roles in cancer. And while the incidence of these are, are not necessarily increasing with climate change, the ability for um, individuals to uh, seek help through the healthcare industry actually may be altered by climate change. When you think about it, uh, extreme weather such as flooding and storms may actually damage healthcare infrastructure. And, and for example, with HPV, it's very important people get regular screenings and vaccines to prevent um, the possibility of an HPV infection uh, leading to cervical cancer. So the disruptions to the healthcare infrastructure may really have an impact on cancer in that way and also on treatment of cancer. So radiation at oncology services actually 
uh, can't really operate on backup generators. So if we have severe weather enough to knock out the power, um, those individuals may not get the treatment they need. Um, but a more direct answer to your question. So uh, obviously lung cancer um, can be affected by climate change. And actually lung cancer is the primary uh, cancer related, uh, high, it has the highest mortality of all cancers worldwide. And you probably know that tobacco consumption uh, is the number one cause, or at least the number one risk for lung cancer. But um, as tobacco is being more and more controlled, we have air pollution actually posing an increased threat as well. So, um, you know, especially, you know, in California, climate change actually increases the risk of wildfires. And wildfires um, may come about because of these changes in weather, like increased drought, rising temperature, uh, changes in precipitation, and, and human factors like land management. Um, and wildfires actually generate what's called particulate matter 2.5, and this is fine inhalable particles um, with a diameter of 2.5 micrometers or smaller. Um, and these actually go in and they stick to your lungs. And they can include um, chemicals such as polyaromatic hydrocarbons, benzenes, and formaldehydes, which are all known to be carcinogenic. Um, so lung cancer is definitely on the radar for something that may be affected by climate change. Um, but Beyond that, I mean, if you're being exposed to any environmental toxicants, you're, you're at an increased risk for many types of cancer. For my last question, I wanted to ask you if you had any advice for our listeners on how they could protect themselves from skin cancer in relation to climate change or any of the other kind of cancers you spoke about earlier. Sure. Well, the unfortunate news is that you can't prevent it. Um, but there are definitely precautions you can take in the, in the um, case of skin cancer that can help lower your risk. So reducing your exposure to UV radiation is clearly number one. And this can include seeking shade, um, covering up your exposed skin if you're going to be outside for a long period of time, wear, wearing broad spectrum sunscreen, um, and then keeping an eye on moles you may have, having them checked yearly by a dermatologist. Um, but I guess most importantly, if you have children, to put in extra effort to protect them. As I mentioned earlier, cancer can have a really long latency and exposures you have in childhood uh, can really accumulate and, and cause you trouble down the road. Um, similarly, with protection from air pollutants, if you're in an area where there are wildfires or you have other um, air pollutants, you may want to make sure you can protect yourself the best as possible from uh, inhaling these things repeatedly. Well, thank you so much for being on our show. Uh, your information has definitely been important to our topic. Well, thank you for inviting me. Let me know if you have any other questions. Okay, thank you. been eye-opening for me. Before researching, I had no idea that climate change could lead to more people getting sick from infectious diseases and cancer. Now it's clear to me that we have to take more steps towards undoing the damage that climate change has already done for the sake of both the planet and us humans. Yeah, for me as well, Samantha, I think I tend to think on the topic of climate change often, but only how it's affecting our planet rather than what's going on with us as humans. We're directly affected by the air we breathe and the atmosphere that we're in. 
So getting a grip on climate change is something we as individuals and as a community need to take much more seriously. Thanks for listening in, guys. We hope you enjoyed and learned something new. Come back to the Climate Change Clapback to learn more from our colleagues and about other issues surrounding climate change. Thank you.